Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, an original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Hello and welcome to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that gets all excited and puts its winter things away far too early before hiking back to the loft and dragging it all out again a week later. My name is Mark Hunter, cryptocurrency writer and current owner of the world's most annoyingly persistent cough, and with me, as always, is the man who can't wait to go gathering up the spring tulips, it's Arthur Van Pelt. Arthur, how's life? Yeah, I'm fine, Mark. (laughs) I'm fine. Glad to hear it. Well, we've got a lot to go through this month, so shall we crack on? Yes, sir. Excellent stuff. Now, we start, as always, with what is a heavily extended spell in Lawsuit Corner, as Craig Wright continues to amass more suits than a Tom Ford warehouse. First to the Kleiman vs. Wright case, and the efforts of Wright's legal team, Rivero Mestre, to fight off a subpoena issued by W&K against it. Arthur, can you please remind us what this subpoena was all about? Yeah, well, it, it appears that uh, Ira Kleiman uh, Council has started to try to collect uh, the $143 million that Craig Wright owes Ira Kleiman for about a year. Mm-hmm. So after they requested the so-called Form 1.977 last year in November, a document on which Craig Wright has uh, to fill in uh, all the valuable uh, assets that he owns, which could be used uh, to pay off his uh, massive debt. But however, Craig refused to cooperate with uh, this request uh, last year. So now Iris Council is uh, taking two actions uh, alongside each other. Firstly, they asked uh, the court to order that Craig uh, has to fill in this form. And secondly, they subpoenaed Craig's counsel, Riviero Mestre, to come up with all the payment details of how Craig Wright and uh, yeah, people closely uh, related to him, like Lynn Wright and Ramona Eng, his wife and ex-wife, how they paid for uh, Rivero Mestre's uh, services in all those court cases that uh, they do for him or in his benefit. And that's if you ask me, uh, that's a pretty clever move of uh, Irish Council because presuming they succeed in obtaining that information uh, that they want, they can map out all the bank accounts and entities uh, using these bank accounts to get a view on who and what is related to Craig Wright and who are sponsoring his legal endeavors. So I'm getting Rico vibes already. <laughs> I'm sure you know what Rico is, uh, right? Oh, yes. That's when people and companies uh, cooperate in uh, something called uh, racketeering, which is uh, dishonest and fraudulent business dealings. And there's an act uh, supporting the pursuit of all the people involved uh, almost everywhere on earth and bringing them to justice. So, yeah, I'm very curious uh, what is coming from this. On January 23rd, Judge Beth Bloom received a letter on behalf of Ramona Ang in her alleged position as Tulip Trust trustee through Rivera Mestre. The letter claimed that the law firm was under no obligation to hand over financial records relating to Wright's other lawsuits because they had no bearing on the case in question. The letter ended with the claim that Even if W&K could collect its judgment against Dr. Wright from the assets held by either Ang or the Trust, which it cannot, the amount that Ang or the Trust paid in legal fees in past years has no bearing on the assets they hold today. The documents sought are altogether irrelevant and unnecessary to W&K's judgment collection efforts. The response a week later was predictable, but amusing. Ira Kleiman's lead counsel, Vel Friedman, started by saying that, in writing to the court as a non-party, despite her claimed position as Tulip Trust trustee, Ramona Ang had about as much business submitting something to the court as a flock of Canadian geese. 
He then offered a second and altogether more ridiculous reason why it shouldn't succeed. Arthur, I'll hand this one to you. <laughs> yeah, this was a beauty, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, yes. Craig Wright's counsel, uh, influenced by the great Dutch, uh, bringing their <laughs> IQ down uh, to Craig's level, <laughs> accidentally mixed <laughs> Judge Beth Bloom with another Judge Bloom from a totally other <laughs> district court. <laughs> yeah. Stupid. Yeah, you cannot you cannot believe this. <laughs> Let me read a quote from uh, from the filing of uh, Irish team. Although Mrs. Eng purports to bring her motion pursuant to rule number five of your honor's individual practices and local rule 37.3 requiring letter motions for discovery disputes, the court does not have a rule five and there is no local rule 37.3 in the Southern District of Florida. <laughs> Instead, it appears that Mrs. Eng, who is represented by the same attorneys that have represented her husband, Craig Wright, in this litigation since 2018, filed her motion pursuant to Magistrate Judge Lois Bloom, Individual Rule 5, and Eastern District of New York Local Civil Rule 37.3. <laughs> so there you go, Mark. We have here a mix-up of... Uh, uh, Lois Bloom uh, from New York and uh, Beth Bloom from uh, Miami. So, uh, I mean, a professional lawyer would never make such a mistake. So this is really, for me, an example of the great touch. Friedman continued with further threshold defects that the submission suffered from, including whether Ramona Ang was even allowed to try and quash a motion that wasn't even aimed at her, and that she only quibbled about the amount of the payments concerned and presented nothing to support her claim that it was wrong. Clearly, Craig Wright is rubbing off on her. Friedman's summary ended with, It is clear W&K has an interest in lifting the veil on where these assets are truly coming from, and how much are being spent, given they are being spent to avoid Wright's payment of the more than $143 million he owes W&K. Arthur, this is pretty shameless stuff from Rivero Mestre, isn't it? To hide behind Ramona Ang, who isn't even involved in the case, to stop the payments being made public. What do you think they're scared of? Ah, uh, well, of course, it's Mestre's duty to defend Craig Wright with all possible legal means. So that's what they're trying first. I mean, let's give them that for the moment. But in case it is discovered that shady parties have been involved with payments for Craig Wright's legal spree, then the story, of course, uh, changes dramatically. And don't forget, Craig Wright is provably using fraud and fraudulent evidence to get it his way in his court cases, which puts the spotlight on Riviero Mestro even more, because they are happily throwing uh, that fraudulent evidence around in all, uh, in all the courts, and apparently without any due diligence. It has always surprised me uh, that it is allowed that councils like Rivero Mestro in the uh, United States, and Ontier in the UK, same story, and Vigborg Rhein, uh, which was... Uh, uh, replaced by Schjöd, if I say that uh, in the correct way, in Norway. They, I mean, they keep on throwing Craig's fraudulent evidence into the cases they defend, and they all get away with it. So yeah, it is possible that Rivero Mestro is uh, hiding something uh, shady when it comes to the monetary sources uh, they connect with. But we don't know yet. The motion was amended to take out the use of the wrong Judge Bloom before an argument against Friedman's other points was made. This included the argument that Ramona Ang does have standing to bring the case because her financial records will be among those investigated, and also sought to argue against a point that Ira Kleiman's legal team have made before, that the cases brought by Lynn Wright and Ramona Ang are being directed behind the scenes by Craig Wright and are all the result of his promptings. 
Rivera Mestre said of this claim, These women are not Craig Wright's chattel. They are separate individuals with legal rights and interests of their own, rights and interests of which this court may not summarily dispose despite Roche Friedman's vaguely misogynistic demand that it do so. This, of course, ignores the fact that both cases were brought in the lead-up to the Kleiman vs Wright trial and both were brought with the avowed intent of stopping the trial going ahead. Arthur, how much involvement do you think Craig Wright has had in these cases? Well, now imagine that I would say totally nothing. No, I'm sure that you and, and every listener to our podcast would instantly call me crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Because that option is out of the question. Lynn Wright and Ramona Eng only act in the interest of Craig Wright and Craig Wright only when he needs them to do so. So eh, to obfuscate and stall things for him or to avoid uh, him to come through with payments to Ira Kleiman. There's not even a snowflake's chance in hell that these women would come up with the detailed accusations in their cases, like the ownership of WAK and about Dave Kleiman's uh, discs being wiped, and that's why Tulip Trust lost access to private keys of the Satoshi Sash and other assets that Craig Wright uh, claims to own. Of course, these women act as uh, so-called sock puppets for uh, Craig Wright. There's no doubt about it, and the judges will no doubt uh, see it likewise. Mark my words. The filing ended. Even assuming the trust were the fictitious entity that Roche Friedman claims it is, which it is not, and which the plaintiff would have to establish on evidence more substantial than counsel's hollow and harshly cast aspersions, the amount of legal fees the trust has paid to RM over the last two years says nothing about the assets held in the trust today, or Craig Wright's ability to satisfy the judgment today. This month in the Kleiman vs Wright case, we've also seen more discussions over the contentious Form 1.977, which Arthur has already introduced. What's worth noting here is that the request made by Ira Kleiman's team is hardly an imposition on Craig Wright. This is a form that every individual who has a civil judgment against them but chooses not to pay will eventually have to fill out, and there are sanctions for those that don't. Clearly, however, as we can tell from Wright's refusal to fill out this form, and Vel Freeman's battle with Rivero Mestre, there is something in here that Craig Wright doesn't want the world to see. Friedman submitted the request to the court on January 6, and as we covered last month, Wright's counsel moved to dismiss this two weeks later, stating that, as usual, the ownership of W&K hasn't been decided, so no payment is due, which is a lie, that Ira Kleiman lacked the standing to make the demand on W&K's behalf, seeing as he wasn't a majority shareholder, which was ironic, that the motion was moot because W&K was in the process of changing lawyers, and that the motion was premature because the court hadn't ordered it yet. Ira Kleiman's counsel replied to this on January 27th, arguing that the motion wasn't premature because, to quote Vel Friedman, the only way to ask the court to order completion of Form 1.977 is to file a motion asking the court to compel completion of Form 1.977, which makes sense. Craig Wright possesses no interest in W&K and therefore lacks standing to make arguments on its behalf just so he can evade his legal obligations, which is the downside of saying you don't own anything, and that Wright repeatedly and unsuccessfully argued that the estate, Ira Kleiman, lacked authority to act on behalf of W&K and that W&K had additional members, which, as we know, was a point the court had already previously agreed with. Friedman's reply also noted Judge Reinhardt's comments over the Tulip Trust in 2020, saying, Wright's response also contends that the purported Tulip Trust is now the controlling owner of W&K. But in this litigation, Judge Reinhardt already concluded by clear and convincing evidence that the Tulip Trust does not exist. 
Friedman also demanded that Wright fit in the form within 10 days and hit out at the delaying tactics from Rivero Mestre. But Arthur, it's all well and good complaining over delaying tactics, but how long has Ira's legal team had to get to this point? Yeah, that's also something that I cannot wrap my head around, Mark. Ira's counsel announced uh, that they would start enforcing the collection of the 143 million last year in March, if I remember well. But as we recently learned, it took them until November last year to request uh, this form. So what happened in these eight months between March and November? I have no idea. I, I really don't know. And it appears that Ira Kleiman himself also has no idea what happened in that time frame, looking at the letters that he sent uh, to court on his own behalf. Yeah, he bypassed uh, his counsel and he sent uh, two letters to the judges in, uh, in Miami. Let me quote Ira Kleiman from one of those letters. The first one, he said, At this point, I honestly don't believe they want to recover the WNK judgment, otherwise I wouldn't have had to press them into requesting the Form 1.977. There was no reason to allow a year to go by before taking such simple collection efforts. Well, it was not completely a year, it was eight months, but okay, I'll give that uh, to Ira. But uh, in all instances, I can fully understand Ira's frustration here, uh, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and these filings he made, they're pretty extraordinary, both in their content and the fact he made them behind the back of his own counsel. Now, Rivera Mestre jumped on this filing by making their own the very next day and gleefully rolling around like a pig in shit over Ira's decision to throw his legal team under the bus. To be fair, Kleiman's team would probably have done the same, so that bit's hardly surprising. However, the filing cited a conflict of interest over the 1.977 form and said that the delay in Roche Friedman trying to collect the judgement meant that it puts the interest of its owners ahead of its clients and that they do what best serves themselves and themselves alone. Now, it wasn't immediately clear to me why delaying collection benefited anybody other than Craig Wright, and I wasn't alone. Climate versus Wright court reporter Carolina Bellardo confirmed to me that there was indeed no obvious advantage to not collect within a year, and that it in no way bolstered their claim to get Ira's now renamed representatives kicked from the case. We also got another quite extraordinary filing in the Kleiman vs. Wright case this month, when one Paul C. Huck Jr. Esquire of the Huck Law Firm wrote to the court saying that he was now legal representative of W&K and as such he demanded all the case notes so far. This was followed less than 24 hours later by a second note from Ira Kleiman, this one to note that he had never heard of Paul Huck or the Huck Law Firm and that he had in no way instructed them to act for W&K. He concluded this short missive by stating, I can only assume that was initiated by individuals under the control of the defendant. Evidence clearly shows that Dr. Wright unlawfully gained control of the W&K company back in 2013, and it appears that he is now attempting to use family members to do so again. Two weeks after this, on February 10th, both sides addressed this strange affair, with Rivero Mestre trying to use Ira's appointment of Paul Huck to get Kleiman's second law firm involved in the case, Boys Schiller, also kicked from it. The filing claimed that W&K discharged Roche Friedman LLP, now doing business as Friedman, Normand and Friedland LLP, and Boys Schiller as counsel, and engaged the law office of Paul Huck in their stead. 
It also dismissed Ira Kleiman's claim that he didn't authorise it, saying, This was yet another instance of Ira Kleiman acting as though he, as the personal representative of his brother's estate, is synonymous with W&K, despite zero evidence that he or his brother ever owned a controlling interest in W&K. Let's not get into that again. Arthur, what did Vel Friedman make of this slightly odd situation? Uh, on, on February the 10th, uh, which was just uh, two weeks ago, they filed their view on the situation and requested the court to strike the fraudulent appearance of uh, this Huck individual uh, in the lawsuit. And I'm, uh, on Twitter, I'm calling it uh, the Huck fuck uh, every now and then, Mark. <laughs> As in uh, Craig Wright uh, trying to fuck up the court proceedings uh, with another attempt uh, to derail the case that will ultimately fail as always. <laughs> but let's be honest, uh, these desperate uh, court actions uh, certainly uh, spice up the Craig Wright saga every now and then. But now let's take a quote from uh, Fel Friedman's filing that nicely summarizes the situation. Now, in a transparent and desperate attempt to prevent WNK from ever collecting on that nine-figure judgment, Wright has enlisted his ex-wife Lynn Wright and his current wife Ramona Watts, who purports to be the trustee of the fictional Tulip Trust and who is represented by Craig Wright's lawyers from Rivero Mestre to purposely terminate WNK's attorneys and replace them with an attorney of his own and his family's choosing, Mr. Huck. There is no secret as to the motive here. Through Mrs. Wright and Mrs. Watts, Wright hopes to gain control of WNK and cause it to release its 143 million judgment against him. This effort is wholly premised on frivolous factual and legal arguments that this court, Judge Bloom, and the jury repeatedly rejected over the past five years of litigation. Yeah, and here, here I rest my case, Mark. There is no doubt in my mind, and I hope also in, uh, not in your and uh, listeners' mind, that we won't see much more of this uh, Huck person, and the Huck fuck will explode Craig's face any day soon. It's just brazen. It's such a brazen attempt to sway things in his direction. I mean, I'm no legal expert, but I've never known anything like this from what I've covered so far. Nay, but this is also, and yeah, I call it, it, it spices up the whole thing uh, every now and then, these, these actions. It's, hmm. it's brazen, and it's always uh, that Craig Wright is moving forward. Instead of backing down, he creates a new scam to cover up the old scam. Didn't we call it scamception once? We did, didn't we? <laughs> That's everything for the Kleiman vs. Wright case for now, so we'll move on to Wright's case against a group of developers. This, as we're sure you know by now, relates to the infamous pineapple hack that wasn't, the OneFeeks wallet, and the fate of over 100,000 Bitcoin. For the full background on this, check out Series 1, Episode 5 of this podcast series. Wright's claim that blockchain developers owe a fiduciary duty to coin holders was thrown out in March last year, but he appealed. This appeal was heard in December last year, and the ruling came down this month. Arthur, what did the three-judge panel rule? Oh yeah, let's go straight to the conclusion of the ruling, uh, Mark. It's a perfect little summary of uh, what the judges uh, thought about Craig's appeal in this uh, pineapple hack of uh, 110,000 uh, BTC and its forks, uh, of course. The conclusion was... I would allow this appeal. The conclusion is not that there is a fiduciary duty in law in the circumstances alleged by Tulip, only that the case of advances raises a serious issue to be tried. So he is not getting it his way for the fiduciary duty, it is only that a serious issue can be tried. And so let's be clear about that. Then the judge continues. 
The time to decide on the duty in this case is once the facts are established. As the judgment itself showed, to rule out Tulip's case as unarguable would require one to assume facts in the defendant's developer's favor, which are disputed and which cannot be resolved this way. If the decentralized governance of Bitcoin really is a myth, then in my judgment there is much to be said for the submission that Bitcoin developers, while acting as developers, owe fiduciary duties to the true owners of that property. Now, and the other two judges uh, agreed with that. Naturally, the BSV crowd treated this like they'd won the actual lawsuit, rather than having won just an appeal to hold a trial over the lawsuit, which are two very different things. But then Craig Wright tried to claim that he'd won the Hoddlenaut UK case when in fact he'd won a motion, so no surprise there. Wright revelled in the win, banging on about decentralisation again, and saying that when the TTL case concludes, no blockchain will ever exist again that can act without the developers having responsibility for their actions. When asked what would happen if he lost the case, Wright replied, We won't. There is no way on earth that BTC will prove that they are decentralised in the aspect of how they claim to be. You're asking if unicorns appear on fart gold. They don't exist. What the fuck is he talking about? The victory was obviously enjoyed across the BSV ecosystem in general. But Arthur, now we're definitely going to trial. There's a few points we need to discuss. Firstly, this is going to be logistically very challenging. Have the defendants all come together under one law firm or are there multiple law firms representing them? You know, I, I try to keep track of all the court uh, the, uh, of all the court documents that I can find, but this case is in uh, the United Kingdom and they don't have a public court docket like in the United States. And only intermediate rulings, and of course the end uh, judgment, they are made uh, public. But for example, these types of cases in the UK start with so-called particulars of claim, and these are very costly to request from the courts. And you can think about uh, several handfuls of uh, pounds. And that wouldn't be a problem directly, but given that Craig Wright has quite a few cases running in recent years, and each of them has many handfuls of uh, filings over the course of the proceedings, and since I'm not being paid a penny to tweet uh, and write on Medium, or for the podcast, uh, let's also uh, make that very clear, mm-hmm. then it suddenly becomes a costly uh, hobby uh, to do this, you know. So I depend on several lawyers, or sometimes parties uh, from these cases, who make things uh, public. And even CoinGeek has been uh, my source uh, a few times for a Craig Wright uh, filing, <laughs> believe it or not. But yeah, uh, back to this case, particulars of claim document does not contain the names of the councils yet, because the defendants at that moment did not hire a council uh, at that moment. So you have to dig into other documents of the case to figure that out. So there is a James Ramsden, who was instructed by Bird and Bird, for the respondents to up till 12 and 15 and 16. Now, try to keep track of these numbers, uh, Mark. Mm -hmm. These are the Bitcoin and eCash developers who appear to have joined forces. And then there are Alex Charlton and a guy called Daniel Koo who are instructed by Brett Wilson for the respondent number 14. And you know who that is, Mark? No. That is Roger Ver. Ah of Bcash himself, yes sir. So he's also involved. But I'm not sure if you now followed my uh, my numbers, but we missed uh, the defendants number one and number 13 in this list. Mm-hmm. Defendant number one is the BSV Association, who already settled. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 
as they have developed uh, the notary tool and with several uh, freeze and seize and reassignment code uh, changes in Craig's uh, altcoin BSV to help him get back uh, the 110,000 BSV tokens that he is claiming to own in this case. So they never represented uh, themselves, well not in public at least uh, as far as I know, uh, by a council. And to finish, defendant number 13 is a lone Bitcoin developer who appears to have decided uh, yeah, to sort of ignore this lawsuit or at least not to re uh, represent uh, himself. That's uh, what I uh, didn't figure out uh, so far. Mm -hmm. Okay. I imagine then that many of the defendants uh, were hoping the case was going to be kicked because of the legal expenses involved in, um, in defending it. We know that Craig Wright doesn't care about this because he's promised to uh, was it hunt every dev until they're broken, bankrupt and alone. Can you see some of the defendants defaulting because they can't afford the legal costs? Yeah, maybe, but uh, I, I don't consider it very likely, Mark. Maybe that's one of the reasons why uh, one of the Bitcoin developers is uh, trying to avoid uh, being involved in this lawsuit. But again, I, I'm not so sure. Uh, I'm not sure about that. But in the end, I see the community stand up for the developers when they do a crowdfunding or a rich backer, anonymous or not, will stand up. I'm pretty sure about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone in the Bitcoin community is uh, thoroughly disgusted about these uh, legal actions of Craig Wright. So when the, the Bitcoin developers announced that they could use uh, some help, and I mean, they already have the moral support of everyone, but when they need financial support, uh, they will likely get plenty of it. Okay. So moving on to the actual case then. Now, Wright claims, of course, that he owns the OneFix wallet and that the pineapple hack took place. To date, this has been accepted by the court as fact because that's what they do at this stage, which means the evidence has never been looked at in a critical manner and in a legal setting. So what evidence do you think he'll produce to support these claims and what can be used to counter it? Yeah, well, the funny thing about this case is that when um, is that Craig Wright, had, he had to open up uh, about everything from the start. So all the exhibits were sent to the defendants with the whole background story. We read in CoinGeek that the whole package consisted of at least the purchase order and information about an exchange in Russia, where Craig uh, claimed that he bought uh, the majority of the Bitcoin, which is 80,000 out of uh, 110,000. So yeah, what can be expected of what the developers are, are going to do? Think about it, uh, Mark. Kleiman exposed dozens and dozens of Craig-made forgeries. Hodlnot in Norway exposed over 70 forgeries. Peter McCormick completely destroyed Craig Wright's false evidence about speaking opportunities at seminars, etc., that he lost around 2018-2019 because of Peter's tweets. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I'm sure that you're gonna you're now catching my drift, right, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it it shouldn't surprise anyone that the developers will be the next in line to expose Craig Wright's counterfeits and false stories about things that never happened. Craig Wright never bought anything early 2011 on a Russian exchange that didn't even trade Bitcoin before September 2013. In CoinGeek we learned that it was the uh, a Russian exchange called uh, WMIRK. And yeah, uh, online there is so much information uh, to find about this uh, exchange, so it uh, didn't take me long uh, to completely debunk uh, that they uh, even did something in uh, 2011 when Craig claimed that he bought uh, 80,000 uh, BTC from them. And because we have this address, one fix, 
that address was involved in a hack of uh, Mt. Gox in March 2011. Mm -hmm. So either that exchange or Craig Wright was involved in hacking Mt. Gox. So, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the story stinks in, in, from all angles. So yeah, uh, there will be no doubt a forensic expert in this case again on behalf of the, the Bitcoin developers. No idea who uh, yet, of course, but we can just wait for that. Mm -hmm. Now, Twitter user Gonby uh, put together a great thread on the ins and outs of this case. And when I asked him about this, he said that Wright could still lose the case predicated on those elements, but the court could still rule that developers do have a fiduciary duty, which is potentially quite worrying. Now, as for what would happen if Craig Wright wins, could you give us a breakdown of what Craig Wright thinks it means will happen and what actually would happen? I'm afraid that this Twitter user Gunby, I think he's probably right. Earlier I quoted from the appeal judgment uh, where the judge said, the time to decide on the duty in this case is once the facts are established. Mm -hmm. So initially my guess was that the case would stall at the point that Craig can't prove he owns the Bitcoin let alone that they were stolen from him. That story is uh, totally bogus and will go nowhere. I'm 100% certain of that, looking at all the cases that he lost so far in recent years based on false evidence. But then, will the case really stall and not move forward from there? One can read that sentence also like, when it turns out that Bitcoin is not decentralized for a fact, and uh, then we can have a closer look at the merits of the case, and rule on the question if the developers do have a fiduciary duty towards the users of the Bitcoin system. Excluding Craig Wright, because he did not manage to prove uh, that he is the owner of, uh, of anything. But then you can still go on with uh, yeah, the generic uh, question of uh, this fiduciary uh, duty thing. Mm. So yeah, let's break down what, what could happen. We have uh, two, in fact, then two, two cases uh, alongside each other. Craig's own case where he has to prove the Bitcoin that he owns and that they were stolen from him. And on the other hand, we have the fiduciary duty question. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then we have exactly th three things that could happen. Number one, Craig Wright can prove that he owns the stolen Bitcoin and that he can convince the judge that the developers should help him recover these stolen Bitcoin because they have that duty. That would be a complete win for him. So yeah, that's not going to happen, of course, <laughs> uh, but let's play along with the scenario anyway and pretend that no one is going to appeal the judge's decision. So what will happen is that the Bitcoin developers, they have to enter a uh, Bitcoin improvement proposal, a BIP, on, on GitHub. They get the code done somehow, and then it is left to the 10,000s of Bitcoin nodes all over the world to vote, and normally that's called signaling, uh, for this update. But not any uh, node will vote for this update, I can assure you, Mark. And it would then be interesting to see if Calvin Air is trying to set up, uh, let's say, uh, 200,000 uh, Bitcoin nodes to overpower the Bitcoin network with his votes for this code update and see how the Bitcoin network will respond to that attack. But ultimately, Craig Wright has to sue each and every Bitcoin node in use by exchanges and all other services, and each and every Bitcoin home node that professional Bitcoin users uh, maintain at home uh, on their infamous Raspberry Pis. <laughs> uh, and then he has to change thousands of Bitcoin miners and mining pools all over the world that are not cooperating. So that is literally a financial uh, and, and, and enforcement mess that not even Calvin Air is going to sponsor, I'm sure. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, again, it, it will not go this far uh, ever. Mm-hmm. But the second scenario is that Craig Wright, he cannot prove that he ever owned the stolen Bitcoin. And that is a certainty to me. But let's say the case ends up that the judges rule that the developers have a fiduciary duty of some kind. And this is not only interesting from a legal angle, but it would also cause a shockwave through the world of open source projects, of course. This would be devastating. And I cannot even think about the consequences of such a ruling, Mark. Mm. But trying anyway, I think the first thing that all the open source project will do is put extra disclaimers in their copyright and licenses uh, to avoid and, well, straightforwardly uh, reject any responsibilities coming from fiduciary duties. What I also can see happen is that such a ruling is going to be uh, appealed to hell and back again and then some more to Mm. fine-tune these duties uh, to the exact detail. And then all these duties will be rejected one by one in all the copyright and licenses again. <laughs> so yeah, this this is going to take decades to play out, Mark. So mm-hmm. even if Craig Wright had won uh, his Bitcoin part, uh, like in the first scenario that I uh, described, he will not even get close to collecting uh, the fruit of uh, such a ruling anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And then there is the third scenario that Craig Wright will not win his Bitcoin and the judges will rule that there are no fiduciary duties for developers uh, working uh, on open source and decentralized projects uh, falling under the MIT license like uh, Bitcoin. And uh, as far as I can judge it, and of course I'm not a uh, super duper uh, expert, but as far as I can judge, uh, this is for me by far the most likely outcome. Obviously, it's too soon to know when the trial date will be for this one, but we can expect it to be late 2023 or early 2024, depending on the potential length of the hearing. Given the international elements of this case, it's more likely to be 2024. Now, one little nugget we did get in the fallout from this was from Calvin Eyre, who, when asked if any further evidence of right being Satoshi would come out at this trial, replied, There is no need for any more for anyone smart and not conflicted. What this means is trolls like you are out of work as the law comes to digital assets. Arthur, we were told after the Hodlinaut appeal that new evidence was waiting to be entered in the next trial. Do you think this means Calvin has had a change of heart, or should we just ignore his rantings on this? I would ignore Kelvin Airmark. We know from our friends at CoinGeek that, and I will quote again, there may be a chance to hear from some of those who knew Dr. Wright at this time when he calls witnesses to the appeal hearing in Oslo later this year in the case which he is defending against Hoddlenot. The appeal follows the original case heard in September 2022, at which several character witnesses gave evidence on his behalf. In the rerun, Dr. Wright promises there will be more such witnesses talking about his work on Bitcoin. And you might remember, Mark, that Craig once even promised uh, those witnesses would line up to be more than 100. So Mm. that will be quite a trial. Unbearable, that's what it would be. (laughs) Yeah. They will all be kicked out like in the Hodlnaut case, believe me. Now, related to both the developers' fiduciary duties case and the passing off case against the exchanges, is a series of cases filed in the UK business courts that slipped under our radar, mainly because the filings weren't made public and Craig Wright never mentioned them. These cases were all filed last year, with the defendants list being a mere 26 long. These included a collection of Bitcoin developers, as well as companies that Wright says are involved in using Bitcoin and Bitcoin-related items without his permission. He, of course, being its creator. 
These defendants include Square, now called Block, Coinbase, Blockstream, Chaincode Labs, and, interestingly, Copa. We found out about these lawsuits through an appeal that Wright filed, having had a ruling in one of them go against him, and from there we've been able to piece together just what is going on. We'll cover all three cases in detail in our March bonus episode, so make sure you sign up to the Dr. Bitcoin Supporters Club in order to get that when it drops, but here's an insight into the one we have most information for to date. Arthur, before we dive into the details, what's the background to this case? Well, we have three cases in total going through the UK business courts, all of which refer to copyrighted Kraken's claiming over three aspects of Bitcoin, the white paper, the database and the file format. They're all wrapped in one massive case, but it all boils down to those uh, three elements. Basically, he wants all defendants uh, to stop infringing uh, the database rights subsisting in the Bitcoin blockchain. He wants them to stop infringing the copyright subsisting in the Bitcoin file format and in the Bitcoin white paper. He also wants a court declaration that database rights and copyright of the Bitcoin file format and white paper belongs to him. Furthermore, he wants an inquiry as to damages caused to him by these infringements, or alternatively, uh, what profits the defendants made infringing his elite copyrights. Additionally, he is asking for an order by the judge that these damages or profits from the infringements will be paid to him or his companies, and that this order will be published on the websites of the defendants. And of course, uh, he also wants uh, the defendants uh, to pay all the costs and interest on these costs and other reliefs of the proceedings. Now, think about it. If Craig wins, Mark, which he won't, because law follows social consensus and not the other way around. Social consensus has made Bitcoin as it is today. And it means that if he is trying to turn back the clock to 2008 and make a whole new story about the time frame from 2008 up till now, it's just not going to happen. Law will not be friendly about him. But let's play along with this game. If he wins, he will be able to annoy the market with his copyright claims. And he can try to shake and stir a shovel or let's call it reorganize the market into a sort of accepting that BSV is Bitcoin and he will be uh, yeah, mind-bogglingly rich because of all the damages and license fees uh, that are going to be paid uh, to him. And this is the pipe dream of uh, Camp Craig Wright uh, that they are chasing, Mark. Yeah, that's the holy grail, isn't it? That's it. Regarding the file format itself, which was the subject of this case, Wright's claim was that he invented it when he invented Bitcoin, and so anyone else using it was in breach of his copyright. The judge in the case, Justice Miller, asked a very simple and pertinent question while trying to work out where he stood on this one. When and in what form the alleged literary work in the Bitcoin file format was first recorded, in writing or otherwise? This was linked to the idea of fixation, that works should exist in some permanent form before they can attract copyright. Wright replied with, I devised and created the Bitcoin file format in the course of writing the code for the Bitcoin system, and went on to say that the file format which is on the Bitcoin blockchain was first recorded on 3rd of January 2009. This, however, didn't satisfy Justice Miller, who said, all this evidence says is that blocks were written to file in the Bitcoin file format, i.e. the data in a block was stored according to the structure explained in Schedule 2 to the particulars of claim. It does not address the issue of fixation. Where was this structure fixed in a material form? On the basis of those materials, I formed the view that there was no serious issue to be tried. 
In a nutshell, Wright had provided no evidence to back up his claim that the Bitcoin file format was created at any time before January 3rd, 2009, shock horror, even at the stage where all you have to do is present it, regardless of its merits. He offered Wright's counsel, Harkers Parker, a private meeting to give them another shot, which they took. But Arthur, Justice Mellor wasn't exactly impressed with their efforts, was he? Most certainly not. He, he was really not, uh, not impressed. And, and, and you can read it between the lines of, uh, of his uh, judgment. Uh, just a simple a quote from the judgment to illustrate that. Craig Wright's counsel offered extracts from textbooks which show that third parties have defined the structure of a block in the Bitcoin blockchain. As also mentioned above, I have assumed that is the case, but it does not assist the claimants on the key issue in any way. Because that was the whole point. It should be predefined in a file how it is built. It should have anchors. And because it did not have anchors, it has no copyright. And because they are trying to bring in an example from a book where somebody also try to map out these anchors in the file, it means that someone else has had the same problem as every user of Bitcoin. They cannot find the anchors within that file. So of course that is not being helpful in illustrating that the file has anchors because that other user also proved actually that the file did not have any anchors for copyright. So what they did is shoot themselves in the foot. <laughs> When word of the defeat got out, Wright was incensed that certain outlets, read all that weren't CoinGeek, reported it not as a victory for him, but instead a loss, pointing to the fact that two of his three pillars remained intact. This was true, except that this issue wasn't to do with those two pillars, they were to do with the third, which he lost. In fact, the victory that Wright says he obtained through the ruling was mentioned just once to say that it had already been decided on and wasn't relevant to the ruling that came this month. In his multi-post tweet storm, Wright railed at the market manipulation from some outlets and threatened, of course, legal action, saying that the judge was inexperienced, where have we heard that before, and that the appeals judge would see things from his point of view. The irony here is that Justice Meller began his ruling by saying, the claimants may consider themselves unlucky to have had their application for leave to serve out come before a judge with at least some understanding of the technology involved here. Arthur, what Craig is really saying is that he hopes he gets a judge with less understanding of the tech in the appeal, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, it looks like it. And trying to digest what this uh, judge is actually saying with the well-known uh, tone of understatement uh, that we often find in the United Kingdom, uh, in spoken and uh, written conversations, this judge is probably more than very well aware of how a blockchain uh, works. So could this judge potentially be a Bitcoiner? What do you think, Mark? Potentially. At least he knows what he's talking about. That much is clear. And that's why Craig Wright doesn't like him. <laughs> Absolutely. Wright was also at pains to inform everyone that his imminent victory both in the appeal court and in the full trial, which will likely take place next year, will be enforced first in the UK, then the US and then China, which, if anything, shows a very positive mental attitude. Or utter delirium. Not sure which. The appeal of this case will be heard later in the year and we can expect a verdict by year's end. In reality, this is the weakest pillar of the three writers trying to stand on, so it's not all that important. Although the hearing of the appeal might hold up the actual case, we'll just have to wait and see. Arthur, in his ruling, Justice Meller backed up what we've already discussed regarding the cost to developers, saying... 
counsel happened to mention that some of the defendants might not defend the claim, giving rise to the prospect of the claimants obtaining judgment in default against them. Again, in view of my conclusion, I see no reason why the claimants should obtain a judgment in default on the claim for infringement of copyright in the Bitcoin file format. Now, it's nice to see the judge at least trying to protect the defendants from vexatious litigation, but this is already having an impact, isn't it? Yeah, it very much appears that it is a stressful period for the Bitcoin developers, Mark. Not all are uh, speaking out in detail, but we can see a few developers uh, certainly discontinuing uh, with their work for the Bitcoin protocol. And not all of them are on the list of uh, defendants, but uh, that is what I would call the ripple effect of uh, these court actions of uh, Craig Wright. My opinion, however, is that it is, of course, very irritating to see this happen. And I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of the developers experiencing distress that is forcing them to stop with what they love doing, which is building on Bitcoin. But I trust that in the, in the longer term, this will make Bitcoin stronger and much more resilient to these types of social attacks. But it will be, again, and it will be taking a few years to fully play out. Also, we're a few years into Craig's master plan here, and we can see exactly what he's trying to do. We've got the £10 billion class action lawsuit against the exchanges for the BSV delistings. We've got the multiple passing off lawsuits against other exchanges. We've got the pineapple hack against the developers. We've got the Hodlinaut libel trial, and we've got these copyright lawsuits. This has been a carefully planned multi-billion pound five to ten year legal strategy funded by Wright's sugar daddy Calvin Eyre, with right front and centre of all of them. This doesn't strike me as a very Satoshi-like thing to be doing. Um, no, these actions have everything that Satoshi was against, Mark. I remember what Satoshi said in April 2011, before he disappeared in the dark forever. It is in good hands with Gavin and everyone. And remember that he handed all the Bitcoin copyright and open source development to the Bitcoin developers in December 2010. He himself deleted his name from the, from, from, from the copyright files and filled in that the Bitcoin developers were taking over. And that happened December, I had December the 13th. And that was on the last day that he uh, was active on the, on the Bitcoin forum and on uh, SourceForge. Of course, a bit later, he was uh, still in touch with uh, several developers in 2011. So, so we knew he, uh, he was still uh, in the background, a little bit active with those uh, developers. But the point is, he handed over the copyright to the Bitcoin developers. And here we see Craig Wright desperately trying to centralize literally everything Bitcoin around him, from copyright to database rights to licenses to patents and reassigning Bitcoin token tools for his own benefit. So yeah, this, this all has nothing to do with Satoshi. Absolutely nothing. We'll leave Lawsuit Corner there and take a quick tour around the grounds of Castle BSV to see what gems we can unearth lying in the undergrowth. Firstly, BSV got a new exchange listing this week. No, not Binance, perish the thought. And no, of course, not Coinbase, or Kraken, or even Bitalicious. Don't forget, these exchanges are part of the naughty crypto exchange cartel, as are recent DLSDs, Bitfinex and Robinhood, who only acted to suppress the price of BSV by shorting it with their own holdings. No, BSV has gone outside the cartel now, way outside it in fact, and plumped for... Coinstore. Arthur, 
They've finally done it. BSV is finally listed on Coinstore. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the BSV fans are delighted. Hooray, hooray. <laughs> finally, they're in the big time. Yeah, they've hit it big. <laughs> yeah. Now, before we get into the listing of BSV, it's worth noting the two other coins that were listed alongside it, seemingly showing the company BSV is keeping these days. Hybrid token and Brad's coin. Neither of these is currently listed on CoinMetric sites like CoinGecko and CoinMarketCap, and indeed, it's worth taking a moment to look into them because they might help shine a light on where BSV is right now. Hybrid Token claims on its website to be one of the best upcoming cryptocurrency and offers, among other metaverse-based things, a metaverse debit card, which is, and I quote, a discontinued cross-platform commercial hypercard clone. Hmm. In its About section, it explains the hybrid token is still a relatively new concept, and it remains to be seen whether it will be successful. So much for good marketing. Brad's coin, on the other hand, is a universally adaptable asset that leverages global expansion, connecting and automatizing cross-border exchange by decentralized means. Oh look, it's 2017 again. Brad's coin launched in 2019, three years before its white paper was even released, and doesn't have a roadmap past 2022. Visiting its website also made my CPU run at 100% immediately, so there's also a good chance the site is infected with crypto mining malware. Arthur, what does the fact that BSV is being listed with coins like this say to you about where BSV is right now? Yeah, it's telling, isn't it? BSV is seen just as irrelevant as these other uh, tiny altcoins, if you ask me. And just as scammy. Probably, yeah. Now, if anyone from your coin store is listening, please note, this isn't a criticism of your exchange. Every type of coin needs a market, and you're free to list any coin you like. Unlike the crypto exchange cartel, which is absolutely not allowed to list and delist any coins it likes, therein lies the conspiracy. So what did CoinGeek and the BSV clan make of the CoinStore listing? CoinGeek referred to CoinStore as a leading digital currency exchange, reaffirming this by claiming that it was founded in 2020 by professionals from some of the leading digital currency exchanges. Really? That's a claim worth looking into. CoinStore has one co-founder listed, Jennifer Liu, with the other founder not seemingly willing to reveal themselves, like all confident co-founders do. So which leading digital currency exchange has Jennifer Liu worked at in the past? Her LinkedIn profile says that she's been building a DeFi-based product on Layer 2, which she's keeping under wraps for the time being, but before that she spent two years working for, wait for it, WBFEX, the World Blockchain Forum Exchange. Arthur, anything? Never heard of them. <laughs> can you enlighten us a bit more, Mark? <laughs> I will give it my best shot, I can promise you that. Now, it's immediately clear where CoinGeek gets the idea that Jennifer Liu's former place of employment is a leading digital currency exchange, because that's exactly what the exchange called itself. Actually, it called itself the world's leading digital asset exchange, likely, until it was shuttered in December 2021, presumably for being too damned good. So, what did Jennifer Liu do for the world's leading digital asset exchange before it died? She was an event manager, brand ambassador, and then finance and HR manager. So just to recap, we have CoinGeek saying that CoinStore is a leading digital asset exchange, despite it listing coins like Hybrid Token and Brad's Coin, which was co-founded by what it says are professionals from other leading digital asset exchanges, exchanges that have been closed for over a year and were only called leading digital asset exchanges because they called themselves leading digital asset exchanges. 
And of these professionals, one won't identify themselves and the other one worked in finance and HR before the exchange was shut down. Outstanding. Back to CoinGeek's treatment of the listing. After introducing the exchange, it then said something a little familiar. BSV is one of a limited number of digital currencies listed by CoinStore. Unlike many other exchanges, this one is selective, listing around 50 currencies in all. Arthur, where have we heard that before? Yeah, I remember what, what CoinGeek said last year about the LA token exchange listing BSV. The same thing, also that LA token was known to be selective about the tokens it lists. I knew it rang a bell. I knew it was in the back of my mind somewhere. CoinGeek went on to note the recent delistings and added that forward-thinking exchanges recognise the demand for the original Bitcoin and are listing it as a result. All right, CoinGeek, let's play the demand game then. Arthur, when LA Token listed BSV last year, it said that it was yet more momentum for BSV, and we mocked it at the time for the $89,000 in 24-hour trading volume. Now, I'm going to give you three guesses as to the 24-hour trading volume of BSV on LA Token today. So we'll do like a higher and lower game. So what's your starting bid? My starting bid? Oh, man. I have no idea. I'm not following all these exchanges, but... um... Okay, so bear in mind, it was $89,000 last year. Yeah, then my guess is between ten and 50000 Lower. Second guess? My goodness, below 10000 Yeah. Uh, between two and a half and five thousand dollars and $5,000. Lower, last guess? Oh my God, seriously. <laughs> you're, you're never going to get it. Um, between $500 and $1,000 per day. Okay, it's lower. I, this is completely honest. The 24-hour trading volume for BSV on LA Token is down from $89,000 last August to $0.44 cents today. My God. $0.44. Cents. That's how much BSV is being traded on LA Token. My God. How atrocious is that? This is a normal trading day on LA Token for BSV? This is a regular trading day. I checked it two weeks ago and it was $5. It's gone down from $5 to $0.44 in the space of two weeks. My God. Yeah, crazy, crazy. BSV holders will be gratified to know that Coinstore actually has a little more daily volume than LA Token, so they could be looking at an equally spectacular trading experience. CoinGeek finished by expostulating its typical rallying cry. While the crypto media would like to paint the picture that BSV is dead and continues to be squeezed out of the digital currency ecosystem, nothing could be further from the truth. As the new listing indicates, for every exchange that delists, another sees the potential and picks up the baton, and the ecosystem as a whole is thriving. Hi, is that the Samaritans? Yeah, I, I, I need some help. I'm, I'm close to ending it. No, BSV. Breathe, you can get through it. The response from the BSV faithful was muted, with many perhaps realising that this wasn't exactly the ecosystem-killing home run that CoinGeek made it out to be. John Pitt, the operator of the Slictionary BSV vehicle, appeared to question the concept of CoinStore being a leading digital asset exchange, saying, Who owns and runs CoinStore? There's 105 people listed on its website as part of the team, but none with the authoritative roles such as CEO, CFO, CTO, CLO or owner. Calvin Air was quick to put out that fire, shooting back with Singapore Group I think, but not sure. It's not Binance though, so that part at least is good. 
This was met with a very appropriate response from a different user, saying, Not sure, true due diligence. Have at it, Calvin Air. Good luck not decimating your net worth. We don't have any trading volume for BSV on CoinStore yet, but we'll be keeping a close eye on it over the coming weeks to see if it can replicate the success of LA Token. Talking of delistings, Arthur, we've got something of a roll call this month, haven't we? Oh, absolutely. Say that again, Mark. It's <laughs> mind-blowing what we have seen uh, this month. And yeah, it actually already started in, in, uh, in, in January. In the last month, we had Gravity, which was just today or yesterday. Uh, we, Gravity is a Bitstocks enterprise who is fully focused on uh, building on BSV. They delisted it. After its liquidity provider pulled the plug out, the Zumo app make it uh, currently unavailable without telling anyone. Handcash stopped with uh, stablecoin USDC when Circle decided to, in the word of Handcash, drastically terminate all our agreements immediately. We also have BSAV.io going down the tubes, and then this week the Descent wallet also binned BSV because. As they said, the BSV network infrastructure services used by the Decent Wallet stopped supporting the BSV network. We tried our best to continue supporting BSV. However, we could not find any new BSV network infrastructure services. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, let's summarize this whole thing. It, and it, it becomes very interesting here because you might remember, we discussed this before, there was this BSV Claims Limited class action that started in September 2022, and we have seen these many delistings. We have seen in October 2022 Whitebit and Bitcoin.de. Uh, we have seen in November 2022 Blockchair. We have seen in December Bitfinex. We have seen in January this year Robinhood, Circle, the goat in charge giveaways. So, and this month we've seen uh, Gravity, BSAV.io, Zumo, and Descent. So, I think I have more than two handfuls of names here, and again, quite a few high profile uh, entities. And this list is probably uh, even incomplete because I remember that mining pools, as like SV Pool and, and SBI Crypto, they have also been abandoning uh, the BSV mining uh, uh, in this era somewhere. And those were once very large pools for BSV. And forgive me, I'm, I'm doing this by head, so I didn't check when these pools exactly uh, stopped uh, with BSV. But the ex uh, exchanges and other infrastructure services, I did uh, check, uh, though. So yeah, if I were a BSV fan, I would start to feel very, very uncomfortable now, Mark. Luckily, I'm not, though. I promised myself to never touch anything in the BSV realm, but I, I still can try to uh, step into the shoes of, uh, of a BSV fan. We end this month on something rather special indeed. No, not Calvin Air saying that Craig Wright destroyed the Genesis block in order to anchor the Bitcoin blockchain. No, not Enchain's lead developer Steve Shadows, purveyor of all things Terranode, quitting the company. No, not the news that Enchain itself sacked a bunch of employees before Christmas and wants to move its operations to Slovenia. No, not the discovery from one of the most vitriolic BSV supporters of what looks to be paid shill activity in support of BSV. No, I'm talking, of course, about Gavin Andreessen finally offering some clarity over his seven-year flip-flop with regard to his support of Craig Wright. 
If you want to know the full background to this story, check out Series 1, Episodes 3 and 4 of this podcast. But Arthur, could you give us a brief summary of the role Gavin Andresen plays in the Craig Wright story? Yeah, they, they, they actually go, go back quite a bit, uh, Mark. It might probably surprise you, but the first time that Craig contacted Gavin was by head in 2014 or 15. I think it was 2014 when Craig offered his help to the Bitcoin Foundation that was still fully operational back then. With Gavin Andreessen, oh irony, he was hired uh, uh, in the same role that uh, Craig Wright now has uh, at Enchain. He was working as a chief scientist with the foundation. So Gavin, he was forwarded an email from Craig Wright uh, by a colleague at the foundation, but he completely ignored this email from uh, Craig. Later in 2016, he came into contact with Craig again for the signing sessions uh, that ended up uh, completely ruining Gavin's reputation in the Bitcoin community. Yeah, so although uh, Gavin wasn't very active in Bitcoin development uh, anymore, his access to important GitHub features was uh, immediately blocked in May 2016, as the group of active Bitcoin developers were afraid that Gavin uh, might share his credentials with, uh, yeah, by then at least, uh, a very well-known scammer who pretended to be Satoshi Nakamoto. It's not an overstatement to say that Gavin Andresen paid with his career over his support of Craig Wright, support that he has both reinforced and questioned ever since, most notably in the Climber vs. Wright case, where he stated his belief that Craig Wright held the keys to the Satoshi wallets during the signing sessions, but then said it was possible that Craig Wright could have bamboozled him. This has left both sides claiming Andresen for their own, but he came out on February 6th with a final clarification, which he added in the form of a disclaimer to the May 2nd 2016 blog post in support of Wright as Satoshi. I don't believe in rewriting history, so I'm going to leave this post up. But in the seven years since I wrote it, a lot has happened, and I now know it was a mistake to trust Craig Wright as much as I did. I regret getting sucked into the who is or isn't Satoshi game, and I refuse to play that game anymore. Arthur, what did you make of this update from Gavin? Yeah, well, Gavin couldn't be more clear now, could he? Of course, Gavin still doesn't say in a straightforward way that he does not believe that Craig is Satoshi. All we have regarding to the Craig is Satoshi claim is, I have my doubts during the climate versus right deposition that you just mentioned. But let this quote sink in. It was a mistake to trust Craig Wright as much as I did. So clearly Gavin uh, Gavin does not trust any claim or any evidence that Craig Wright shared with him back then. So indirectly he is still saying that he doesn't trust and doesn't believe that Craig is Satoshi. So I cannot explain this uh, otherwise, Mark. Calvin Eyre wasn't able to take this reversal lying down, and took to Twitter to claim that Andresen had been bullied by small block trolls, and urged him to stay strong and just stick to the truth, which, of course, is exactly what he has just done. This undermined Eyre's claims of December 2021 that Andresen knows Craig is Satoshi and this will never change now. However, whether you can argue that Gavin Andresen has changed his mind or has finally put the truth on record, at least his opinion is finally no longer up for debate. That's everything for this month's heavy update. If you want to catch our March bonus episode where we'll be going over those three copyright cases, you can do so either by becoming a member of the Dr. Bitcoin Supporters Club or by downloading from our website for a small consideration. There's currently a free seven-day trial through Patreon if you're interested, which will get you access to all our bonus material so you can get an idea of what you're signing up for. 
For more details, head to our website, drbitcoinpod.com. That's drbitcoinpod.com. Arthur, as always, thank you so much for imparting your knowledge and wisdom on us. As always, you're welcome, Mark. And I'll see you next month. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd really appreciate a rating or even a quick review on your platform of choice in order to get this out to as many people as possible. For early access to episodes and exclusive bonus content, please consider becoming a supporter through Patreon or Anchor. See the details in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen platform in order to get new episodes the moment they drop. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter for podcast announcements and other nonsense, you'll find us at DrBitcoinPod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon. You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Written by Mark Hunter, with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt. Editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.